Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. We live in a cynical world. A cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. You complete me. I'm not just as. Just shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. Well, hello. Good morning. I am glad you made it to the conclusion of our series on love and respect. And let's admit it, we all love the Jerry Maguire moment, right? What's not to love? When a man meets a woman, pink meets blue, they come together, the scales fall from their eyes, and their hearts melt, and, and that, that incredibly poignant words, you complete me, right? Pink sees blue, blue embraces pink, and they live happily ever after, or at least for the you know rest of the evening until their friends leave. Uh, but what I want to suggest to you, as we kind of culminate this series and bring everything to, to a conclusion, is that one of the reasons so many of us experience relationship struggles and uh, with the opposite sex, and again, you can be single, you can be dating, you can be married, maybe you're starting over, you were previously married, you all know what I'm talking about is that we really want to believe and buy into this notion that there is someone out there who will complete me, right? I admit, this is a romantic notion. And quite honestly, both men and women, pink and blue alike, often use that as the criteria for deciding when and whom to marry. If you're single and somebody asks you, they say, well, you know, when when, when do you think, you know, you'll you'll get married? And the answer is usually, well, as soon as I find Mr. or Mrs., Right, there you go. And they're like, well, oh, really? So there's a right and a wrong. Well, what are you looking for? Answer, someone who completes me, who can give me what I need, right? What's missing in my life. And you refer to him or her as as, as the man or woman of my dreams. And we all have these lists, these dreams or these expectations of the guy or the gal we hope is going to be the one, right? And some of them are focused on, you know, kind of superficial stuff like, you know, Tom Cruise, not so bad. Easy on the eyes, Good teeth, I mean, but I'd like a little bit taller than that. Uh, maybe George Clooney, you know, or, or someone short and perky like Renee Zellweger. I love those pouty lips, you know. Uh, but most of us know better than to just focus on mere physical uh, appearance. We're in church after all, so it's like, well, faith, spirituality should have something to do with it. So, um, so, <laughs> so good for you. Uh, so some of you, you blue men here, you were like, yeah, you are, you are holding out for that, that victorious secret model who really loves the Lord, too. You know, you have standards. But, but if anything, this series has taught us that men and women actually have far deeper needs and desires at the core of their being. Really the ones that Paul highlighted for us in Ephesians 5.33, which has been our anchor verse. Each one of you must love his wife, and the wife must respect her husband. Pink needs love like she needs air, we've been saying. Agape love. A woman needs to be loved unconditionally apart from how she performs or looks. And so the dream actually of Pink is to find a man who can meet her deep need for openness and and understanding, who can be close to her and put his arm around her when she's hurting, kind of be really empathetic and listen. Actually, actually, I'm just here to listen. I'm not here to just fix you. You're not a problem to be solved. 
just talk to me. Tell me how you're feeling. Oh, to find that, right? So the dream, that's the dream of pink. That's the way pink is wired and, and intuitively. This is, this is what she hopes one day she'll find in blue. Now, 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 Blue, on the other hand, he needs love as well, of course. But more than that, he craves respect, right? That's his language, his core need. A woman to admire and believe in him apart from how he performs. And, and, and a woman who knows those winning words, as Pastor Tom talked about last week, and can breathe into his soul that, 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 de, that desire to hear, you're a worker, you're a warrior, right? To protect and provide. And what happens is when Pink finds Blue... And, and Blue finds Pink, and they, and they think they've found a match, and, and she looks like she's going to meet my needs, and he looks like he's going to meet my needs. What happens? Well, they form what, what, you know, oh, love, love together, made for one another, right? That's what each is looking for. And then what happens typically is what they do, what we call, they what? Tie the knot. Tie the knot. Thank you very much. You got it. They tie the knot. They become one flesh. And now their separate lives are going to intertwine and braid together, never to unravel or come apart. (laughs) Why? Because you complete me. At least that's what Hollywood suggests. And uh, those of you who are married, though, those of you who have been married, um, you know better. (laughs) Because that's where most movie ends, and that's where they roll the credits, or maybe they'll have one more scene that shows the wedding, And what you don't really see is the day after, when the marriage actually starts and the real adventure begins. Because it only takes actually a few weeks and and a few days sometimes when things actually begin to unravel (laughs) and come apart. Colleen and I uh, had not been married for more than a year when our relationship began to show signs of fraying. And looking back on it, it was no like big major issue, just a lot of stupid little stuff, pink and blue stuff. Uh, But one of the first fights we had, we still, it's embarrassing, we still refer to it as the spaghetti incident. Um, I had just taken my first job. I taught high school English at the time, and Colleen was working in Manhattan as a, as a marketing executive. And, and my job was local. It was actually over at Summit High School. And, and I get home early, like around 4.30, 5 o'clock, and, and that gave me a couple of hours before she would come home on the 6.30 train. And, and we didn't have any kids at the time, no dog even, no responsibilities. And since I would get home early, she, she said, well, you know, if, I'll make dinner, but could you do two things? Just very simple things. She said, could you just clean off the dining room table, you know, where all the mail gets like piled up, and then just kind of get the kitchen in order so, so I can come home and, and cook and all that. And Colleen, she, incredible, oh, of course, generously, she's going to make dinner and all that. And all she asks, junk pile off the table, dishes out of the sink. And uh, I should have known then, I mean, the nerve of that woman, uh, you know, bearing down on me, big requests. Um, but this is in the spring, and, and it was one of the first sunny days when I came home, there's a message flashing on the machine, it's from my buddy John, he lived next door, and he was like, dude, beautiful day, you want to go mountain biking? And I'm looking at the, the you know, the flashing on the machine, do you want to go mountain biking? And I see the dishes, you know, in the sink and everything, and I'm just like, well, you know, let me pray about this. Okay, I'm in. You know, I just like right in there. And, uh, you know, I, I just went right for it. I go, I take the bike, we go out, totally blew off the stuff I had promised to do for her. And, and so she gets home and you could imagine she, she it wasn't, you know, flipping out, but she was a bit upset. You know, I asked a couple things, the dirty dishes are piled in the sink. Papers that I was supposed to grade were, were scattered all over the dining room table, all the junk. And, and, and her girlfriend had given her a ride home from the train and she invited her inside. Yeah, very bad. 
because the house is a reflection of me and, you know, all that kind of stuff and everything. And like, oh, gosh. So I get back from mountain biking and John and I, we had the greatest time. We we're like warriors, you know, in the woods. And, and I come in covered in mud. So I track a little bit in and I can see a little something's wrong, but I'm going to play it cool. Like nothing's wrong. Hiya, sweet. You know, hey, how you doing? Okay. And I go upstairs, get all changed, come back in clean clothes. And, uh, and I could tell something was wrong because she was making spaghetti. Uh, actually, there's nothing wrong with spaghetti. We ate spaghetti like every Monday night. That was like standard. But it was the way she was making the spaghetti. I mean, I didn't know you could make spaghetti that loud. You know, like all oh, the pots and the pans kind of clanging together. The strainer, you know, banging all these pots and everything. And I'm like, okay, she's kind of upset. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm the spiritual leader. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to take the high road on this. So we sit down to eat. And I said, I said, you know what? Let, let's, let's just pray, pray for dinner. Lord, we thank you for all um, that we have. I want to thank you for this beautiful home and, and that it really doesn't matter if it's dirty because it's full of love, uh, God. I just, Lord, we know man looks at the outward appearance, but uh, you really, I can be devious, okay? I mean, talk about, and we're 10 minutes in a small talk when it, when it surfaced, you know? And it's just kind of quiet and playing around the spaghetti on her plate. And, and I'm like, you know, what is it? W- you know, what's wrong? And she goes, you know, I, because I ask you to do two things. And you completely blew me off. And, uh, and I was, of course, you know, shocked. Like, oh, come on. That's not what life is about. You know, plates, who cares? You know, let's live life. And, and, it, and it hurt her, of course. And I'll never forget her, her response because, you know, I'm trying to religiously spin my selfish decision and all of that stuff. But she stopped twirling her spaghetti. And she pointed her fork at me. <laughs> and she said... Um, if, if you asked me to do two things, just, just two little chores to make you feel more comfortable at home, I would never blow you off. And to add emphasis, she kind of flicked her fork at me when she said, never blow you off. And um, of course, as fate would have it, we were having linguine with red sauce. And, um, and as she underscored her point, some of the marinara sauce kind of flicked off her fork. <laughs> And, and hit me in the, in the face a little bit on, under my shirt. And I was like, okay. Uh, you know, I took my napkin, kind of wiped my face. And I was like, okay, you know, uh, just don't, don't flick your fork at me, okay? Uh, and, and she said, I can flick my fork whenever I like. It's my fork. And if I want to flick it, I'm going to flick it. And she flicked it again for emphasis. And I don't quite know what happened, but something snapped in me because no one had ever pushed my buttons in precisely that way and a, and, and a silent snit seemed wholly inadequate as a response. So, so, I, <laughs> so I looked down at my plate of pasta prepared by my loving newlywed you know, bride and I thrust my hand into it. I know, it's your pat. Is, I know. And I held up a handful of noodles. I go, you think flicking is funny? And she says, I do. Now, I had heard those words, I do, about 11 months earlier in a different context. And I said, oh, how would you like if I flick this at you? Not so fun. And she said, well, go ahead. I I don't care. I'll just add to the mess you always leave around here. In my blue wire, you know, start shorting out. So do you know what I did? I, I want to tell you that I took a, you know, just a moment to pray, God help me, uh, you know, oh yeah, that verse, a gentle word turns away wrath, you know, but, but we're in a church, it's early, I don't want to lie to you. So um, like any good, holy Christian pastor who still had an excellent arm from intramural wiffle ball in college, 
I go, <laughs> wow, I let that handful of pasta fly. And it went at Colleen over her left shoulder and hit the wall. Actually, it was a window in the back. Just kind of against the back of the, of the wall. Uh, and I just let it go. It shotgun blast the noodles. And um, I know. And, and it just kind of stuck there for a moment. It, you know, it's like kind of slid, slid and trickled down. You ever see those like sticky octopus? You like throw it on the window and it like kind of tumbles. Like, it comes coming down. And I will never forget this because she was like shocked. She, just, she looked at me and then she looked over her shoulder, looked back at me and did the worst thing in Blue's world ever imaginable. She started laughing. <laughs> oh my, oh, oh, and I started burning, you know. And uh, I will, again, I don't typically raise my voice when I get upset, but it was there. I snapped, I sinned, I hurled spaghetti. And uh, in zero to five minutes, I became completely unraveled and convinced that pink was my, my mortal enemy. It was surprising. Um, but you know what? It shouldn't have been. It shouldn't. See, conflict in any relationship is inevitable, right? In the fourth chapter of his epistle, uh, James, who was the brother of Jesus, he traveled with Jesus, he lived with Jesus, asked this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. And, and this comes as a surprise to many couples. Dating for the first time, engaged, or married for years. Men and women alike. But here's the, the, the deal. It's like a promise. It's like a guarantee of scripture. 1 Corinthians 7.28 literally pr- makes this promise. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Now, this is not a verse you see on a lot of bumper stickers, is it? <laughs> Next time you go to a wedding, you know, write that in a little card, like, yeah, for good luck, 1 Corinthians 7, you know, 28. Good luck to you. <laughs> S- scripture is very candid about relationships. And this is like a promise. Paul is like, you put pink and blue together, you start mixing up, you're going to have problems. You are. It's a guarantee. But because we believe this Hollywood fantasy, like, no, no, she's just, she's going to complete me. She's going to make me feel cared for 100% of the time. All of my deepest desires for significance and, and admiration and, and, and love, we buy into this totally unrealistic and quite honestly, downright unbiblical expectation and put it on the other. And all of a sudden, you're shocked, you're disillusioned when it doesn't happen. Because you start to realize the other doesn't completely. In fact, they're like a source of friction. It's always rubbing against me. And all of a sudden, this, this, this knot that you tied, you know, becomes actually more like a tug of war. You know, it's, it's kind of like we go to our corners, you know, well, he's not giving me what I need, you know, and she's not treating me right. And, and, and Pink is like, I deserve to be loved and understood and, and listened to and, and, and sacrificed for. Didn't you hear the message on week three? You know, <laughs> oh, don't talk to me like that, woman. Did you hear Pastor Tom's last week? I'm not going to love you till you start respecting me. Wives, submit to your husbands and, and don't flick your fork. You know, and, and don't give me that submit business. He said your headship was, was a responsibility, not a right. I wrote it down in my notes. You know, you're supposed to be willing to die for me. I would die for you. You say that, but you never do. You know, there's like this. this and suddenly this relationship that's supposed to be this stunning symbol of, of, of unity and oneness that actually God, God says actually is going to represent 
the relationship between Christ and, and, and his church becomes this constant source of tension and struggle. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. And again, anyone who's experienced tension or conflict in a relationship, you, you, know, you know that. You say, that's right. Pink says, he's not giving me what I need. You know what? You said it yourself. God designed me to love, and he doesn't know the first thing about showing affection, at least the non-sexual kind. Or, or, or Blue says, you know what, you're right, I want something, but don't get it. How about a little respect? I feel like Rodney Dangerfield, you know? Get no respect, you know? All she does is highlight my failings and where I come up short. And so you're left asking, like, well, Blue, what do you think? Does she complete you? <laughs> Not so much. Pink, how about you? You think there's a man out there? who can meet the deepest cry of your heart, complete you? Not so much. And so two good-willed people who are both designed, we're told, in the image of God, male and female, are left to draw only one conclusion. If you're married, you say, well, I guess I, guess I picked the wrong person. Um, I had a woman come up to me last week after last week's service, and she was just crying. And, uh, you know, Pastor Tom was preaching, so I kind of expected it. But uh, she, she, sorry, Tom. She was, uh, she was like, she, that's not why. She, she was like, listen to this about the husband being the worker and the warrior. And she said, I wish my husband was the provider. He doesn't work. He doesn't even look for a job. And, and, the, and the burden of providing for their family falls squarely on her shoulder. And she, like, resents it. She's like, I wish he was a worker. All he does is watch TV. He's not providing as, as in the Bible, as expected. You know, I thought we'd be farther along, but like, look at where we're living. This is not where I expected us to be when we tied the knot. In other words, blue is not completing me. Incomplete. I married the wrong person. I feel uncared for, unprovided. I have needs that he's not meeting. Or maybe he's a workaholic. In that impulse to succeed and achieve is like all-consuming. He loves his job more than me. You know, he, he travels a lot, he stays late, and when he does come home, he tunes out. So you criticize or you belittle his efforts, which, of course, makes him shut down even more because he hears as disrespect. But the only positive female affirmation he gets nowadays is actually from his, his, his female co-worker. I can't believe she said that to you. You don't deserve to be treated like that. You, you work so hard. You got that right, says Blue. And, and that's how the affair starts. It's not always sexual. More often, we have deeper needs that are not being met by our spouse. And so we start looking elsewhere. Incomplete. Maybe I'm with the wrong person. Or if you're dating. Um, well, well, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Um, she doesn't exactly fit all my criteria. I, she, I actually had a guy come up to me. This is in, 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 a, in a service a couple weeks ago. He said, I'm just not sure because I feel like the girl I'm dating, she's not the complete package. Oh, my gosh. She's not the complete package. You know, I, I thought she'd have, you know, bigger eyes. And, she's, and she seems, uh, she's too controlling. You know, whenever there's a problem, she gets, like, like overwhelming emotion. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it reminds me of my mom and dad, and their marriage was like a train wreck. So let's hold off on commitment. I, I don't know if they're the complete thing, and I won't commit until they show evidence of being everything I really need and deserve. Incomplete. Or if you're single, you're not dating. There are, are no prospects on the horizon. You know what? It's not a stretch to feel incomplete. 
I mean, the way our world elevates relationships as the be-all and the end-all of things, you know, there's no one to complete me. I am alone. I have always been alone. I will always be alone. You know what? The church actually does a bang-up job of treating many singles as second-class citizens. Like there are pairs and there are spares. I actually attended, visited, I should say, a church that in the bulletin I saw a group that said pairs and spares. And I was like, oh, they got a bowling club, I guess. I don't know. It was the name of their young couples and singles group. Pairs and spares. Like, well, you're not complete until... you Single, dating, married. It doesn't even matter. If you are looking for a relationship with the opposite sex to complete you... It never can. You know why? Because you married Adam or you're dating his brother. He's been designed by God, but he's been marred by sin. And you know what? He isn't perfect. He doesn't need to always be reminded of that. But if you're looking for him to completely meet your needs and give you significance, ladies, that's going to put a strain and a tension on this relationship that it was never designed to bear. Men, this room is full of Eves. She is beautiful, but she is broken. And if you think, well, now that she's heard this series, she's going to magically now understand and and, and meet my deepest needs for for respect and admiration as a man, take another bite of the apple. (laughs) Single, dating, married. If you're looking at every prospect who comes along in terms of completion potential, they're going to meet the, the deepest part of your soul to be respected and accepted. And guess what? You'll find glimmers at first. But eventually the gaps are going to show and they won't meet meet your needs. And that's when the relationship begins to actually unravel. Or you cut it off. I don't have a pair of shears up here. The Bible says that when we go about trying to find completion or our satisfaction, our significance, our self-worth for another human being, it doesn't matter if they're a good person It doesn't matter if they're bilingual, they speak both pink and blue. It's not going to last. See, when it comes to a relationship, a cord of two strands is easily snapped. Pink and blue isn't made to endure. It needs something else. It needs something more permanent. It needs something more binding. If it's going to withstand the tension that life promises to bring. There's an ancient book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's from Hebrew wisdom literature. It's called Ecclesiastes, and they have some rope-tying instructions in there. Incredibly insightful, almost 3,000 years old, this ancient piece of wisdom, Ecclesiastes 4.12. And I thought we'd just take a look at this, because this is an incredible promise here, and, and it says, let's read this together, okay? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, you can write that down. That's going to be our memory verse today. If you want to commit one to your head, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And you're like, so what is this about, you know, sailing or something like this? No, no. This is deeper significance. 3,000 years old Hebrew wisdom literature. There's great spiritual significance packed into this. In other words, when pink comes to blue in a relationship and she says, look at him. He does look trustworthy. I think he may complete me. I can count on the strength of his love to meet the deepest needs of my soul. Guess what? She's fooling herself. It ain't enough. 
when Blue comes to the woman and looks her up and down, he says, oh, just how I like him, tall and lean. You know, this is, this is, I'm going to braid my life with hers and she's going to meet my deepest needs of the masculine heart for affirmation and esteem. He's fooling himself. Guess what? It ain't going to last because it's not strong enough. It's just too in fact, both men and women are looking to the braiding of their relationship, you know, for a strength that it can't provide. Because it's going to be torn. The Bible says it's going to be tugged. It's going to be tested. And because they're imperfect people, the cords are flawed fatally. They can't be counted on to hold together to one another. Ecclesiastes says there's a third cord needed. Neither pink nor blue. You artists and painters may know where I'm, I'm going with this. I'm told that when blue, as a paint color, is mixed with pink, it actually becomes another color altogether. Anyone know what color it becomes? Purple. The color of royalty. The color of a king. The color, in fact, of God himself. God is neither male nor female. We're told we were made in his likeness and his image, male and female. In other words, he needed to make two to contain the essence of his quality. And when you look in the Bible, the Bible describes God as, um, you know, we ascribe to him mascul- you know, masculine titles like our father. We call him our Lord. We call him our master. But these are simply terms that, that, that are meant to, 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 to reflect his authority, his headship. The son of God, Jesus, right? He came to this earth as a man, as, as, as blue, and yet the Bible says the heart of God, God is what? Love. Pink. And, and, and he's a father at heart. He's full of authority. But yet he's nurturing like a mother to those who are weakest. And so we know that God has both masculine and feminine qualities. And, and he created us in his image. Not wrong, just different. In order to reflect the diversity of his character, which is the character of a king. Purple. The color of royalty, the kind of individual has the authority and the will to bring two perfectly imperfect people together and keep them together by his power because the accord of three strands is not easily broken. It takes three, not two. Who completes you? The picture the Bible paints of a successful relationship is founded on three people. Man, woman, and Jesus Christ. It's interesting, but Ephesians 5, where we've been looking, the whole passage on relationships begins with this simple command that is so complex, it'll take a lifetime to understand. Ephesians 5.21 says this, submit to one another. In other words, pink, you submit to blue, blue, you submit to pink. It's mutual submission out of reverence for who? Purple, for Christ. It takes three. Two is inadequate. And God says... This starts with submission. And now here, I'm going to give you a real fancy definition of submission, okay? You could go all sorts of theological terms, but let me just put it this way. Submission means I am willing to put your deal ahead of my deal. It doesn't come naturally, but I'm willing to put your deal ahead of my deal, not because you're perfect, but because purple put his deal, his interests underneath my own and gave his life. And that's the kind of love I'm, I'm, I'm now called to. But, but this is tough. Because most of us, honestly, 
have enjoyed parts of this series because you're like, hey, these are some good practical skills. Some of it, someone actually said, I've actually started those, those respectful words with my husband. It's amazing. He's totally acting different. <laughs> or now when I ask my wife, like, does she just need me to listen or a solution? She's like, who are you? What have you done with my husband? You know, like, that's awesome. So we're sometimes willing to elevate the needs of the other above my own as long as it pays off, right? But it's very tough because we marry damaged goods. And don't tell me I don't think this. A lot, of, a lot of ladies here have been like, if I show a man unconditional respect and he hasn't earned it, he'll walk all over me. He'll put me on his leash. I'm going to walk like his dog. No. Or Blue thinks, if I respond to a wife who's critical and disrespects me and actually just love her unconditionally, it may not change her. Correct. And that violates every sense of us being willing to serve the other as long as it benefits us. Two weeks ago, after I spoke about unconditional respect, a woman came up to me after the service and she said, all right, I'll try it. This unconditional respect thing, though, just better work, Pastor Tim. I'm giving it three weeks. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't change in three weeks, forget it. I won't do unconditional respect. <laughs> See, our fallen nature looks at us and, and always says, what's in it for us? And we get self-protective. And marriage becomes, quite honestly, marriage becomes little more than a contract. That's actually how the world describes it. Did you know that? A, a contract that's legally binding, right? You go to the courthouse, you sign some papers. Well, if you do this, I'll do that. Now we have certain obligations. So, you know, I'll respect him if he provides, if he's empathetic, if he's a dynamic father, if he never blows it, doesn't get addicted to porn, anything spectacular, I will respect him. Or I will love her as long as she's fulfilling me, you know, sexually, making a home for us, you know, gives me kids, watches the kids, doesn't ask too much when I get home from a day's work. That's the deal. That's how the government looks at it legally. A piece of paper that obligates two people, like, and supposedly, well, I think this, you know, sign this. This will keep us together. And of course, my generation is very cynical, and they're like, what's a piece of paper going to do? I get couples who are living together, say, what's a piece of paper going to do? And I'm like, Exactly. Nothing. Zero. What power does paper have? It's a conditional contract. And what happens when one side fails to keep their side of the deal, right? The contract, well, null and void. I guess that didn't work out. I don't know. We just kept having problems. Pink and blue couldn't work it out, and they're always breaking parts and clauses of the contract. We call those irreconcilable differences. But here's the deal. The Bible's view of marriage is not that it's a legal contract but a covenant. Not something that's bound by man, but by God. Not bound by law, but a braid of love that draws its strength not from your imperfect love, but from the perfect love of Christ Jesus. What kind of love? This is not the schmaltzy, sentimental, you complete me kind. But one that traces its lineage back to the cross of Christ and promises this, I have decided to love you no matter what. Even when you fail to meet my needs and desires and fall short of my expectations for what I want or deserve, I've decided to agape you. Anyway, I promise, no matter what, to put your deal ahead of my deal, even if it costs me my life. Why would you do that? Are they really worth it? No. Out of reverence for Christ. The one who said, I love you this much. I would rather die than live without you. Out of passion, not for pink, but for purple. Out of honor, for what the Son of God did for me on the cross. This is the heart of Christianity. People look at the cross and they say, well, why did Jesus die? have to die for me? Answer, to void a contract. <laughs> 
prior to Jesus actually, you know, prior to Jesus, the Old Testament, our relationship with God was a contract. Debt, debtor. We are in his debt. We owe him. And because we couldn't pay, <laughs> we actually the death sentence. <laughs> this isn't going to work. We're falling short. Contractual. But when Jesus died on the cross, he canceled the legal contract and began what the New Testament calls a new covenant of love. A covenant that was unconditional that says, actually, I love you no matter what. It doesn't even depend on you how far short you fall, how badly you've blown it. I agape you. I accept you as you are. I'm giving my life for you, and I will be with you forever. That's the heart of Christ's covenant promise to us. It's unconditional. It's not based on our ability to respond, but on his pledge to love no matter what. Contract, legal document, covenant, a love declaration, agape, no matter what. Even when it's hard and I'm tempted to quit, I will look to the one who has loved me and continues to do this to this very day. There's a man by the name of Robertson McQuilkin. He was president of an international university, Columbia uh, Seminary, for 22 years. As with most college presidents, he was a brilliant speaker, charismatic leader. He presided over their, their actual huge expansion uh, to an international university while he, while he was president. But at the high point of his leadership in fundraising and speaking engagements around the world, his wife of 40 years, Muriel, began exhibiting some kind of you know, troubling symptoms. She was in her early 60s when she began forgetting things. She began forgetting her keys, and then she began forgetting important dates and forgetting basic things in the afternoon and routines, and, and then she began forgetting her husband's name. And uh, after the consultation, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And uh, Dr. McQuilkin describes in his book, A Promise Kept, how hard it was to watch his wife of 40 years kind of, you know, she was a talented artist, she was a radio personality, she's the mother of his children, actually begin descending into the oblivion of, you know, Alzheimer's. And he wrote, it was like a slow dying for me to watch this vibrant, creative, articulate person I knew and loved gradually just dimming out. And um, again, he was a world traveler, spoke all over the world, and he, he tried to keep up his schedule professionally as best he could, but finally his wife Muriel's condition reached a crisis moment. They were in Tokyo together when it happened. And he said, I learned my lesson in Tokyo, never let Muriel out of my sight. My wife of 40 years was reduced to playing on the beach in front of our motel, building sandcastles. I could see in her work evidences of the skilled artist that she once was, and from the desk where I was preparing my messages, I kept watch. She reminded me there, sitting in the sand, of one of my three-year-olds when they were little. And then suddenly, incredibly, I looked up, and she was gone. She was missing. I, I ran down the beach in one direction, realizing that with every step she'd be further and further away, not knowing her own name or where in the world we were. After hours, exhausted and helpless, I returned to our room. When I opened the door, she was sitting there on the bed. Apparently, some nice young woman offered her a ride home and drove down the beach highway until a clerk said, I, I think she's at this hotel. He couldn't believe that God had protected Muriel and, and, and gave his disoriented wife back to him. And that was when his friends intervened and they said, I think it's time. It's time. His closest friends, his board members, uh, actually said, um, you know, it's, it's time. It's time to put Muriel, you know, in a home. And you understand that. Um, to have her institutionalized so he could continue his dynamic leadership of the school. They said, God has big things for you. He's doing huge things for you. 
you know, this is a hard choice. But it was actually in March 1990 that Dr. McQuilkin called together the entire student body population, the entire board of directors, all the professors, all of his staff members, and to everyone's surprise, at the height of his professional tenure, 22 years as the president and lead dog of this international university, he announced his resignation with these words. He said, my dear wife Muriel has uh, been in failing health for about eight years, and so far I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at the college, but recently it's become apparent that my wife is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time when I'm away from her. And it's clear to me that she needs me now, full-time, and it's time to keep my promise. I did not arrive at my decision easily, but it took me no great calculation. It was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. Integrity has much to do with it, but so does fairness. I gave her my word before God. And just when you want to say, like, oh, it's such a heavy burden he's placing on himself, he turned to the crowd and said this, but there's a lot more. I still love Muriel. Duty can be grim and stoic, but she's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence, her warm love, her occasional flashes of wit that I used to relish. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. And, and so I will no longer preside over the million-dollar building campaigns here on campus. But I will get to bathe Muriel myself every day. And I will no longer be able to travel abroad. But I'll get to brush my wife's hair. Not what you call true love. More than a feeling. Christ-centered love is not a feeling. It is an act of the will. A submission of the heart, first to Christ, and then to the one we've promised to love in his name. What contract can make a man do that? There's no contract, there's no piece of paper that stirs a heart to that kind of sacrifice and service, to wash feet that way. It's a covenant to submit to one another no matter what comes out of those doors. Why? Out of a reverence for Christ because this is how he gave himself for me. When pink and blue actually disappear in a relationship and it's the purple cord of Christ that binds them together and gives them the courage and strength to love beyond themselves. Marriage is not a legal contract. It's a covenant of Christ-centered love, a pledge to carry whatever cross you're given to bear for the other, all in a desire to be faithful to the God who took to the cross for you. No, no one is motivated by a piece of paper. No contract has a snowball's chance of keeping you together when you're tested. Only a commitment to a king can. You think this will hold me? Last service, we'll try it. <laughs> it's an incredible promise. It's a promise that God makes to each of us here today. It is his stubborn decision to love us devotedly, even when, like Dr. McQuilkin's wife, we're unable to pay him back. On the cross, he said, I love you no matter what, and I will not break this covenant. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You will never be alone again, even if you're single. 
You'll never be alone again, even if you're married and going through hell and back. I am with you. And when we commit ourselves to each other in that vein, out of a passion for purple, it will always trump the flat line of feelings. Feelings always fail. In any relationship, a bond that has a hope of enduring forever has to draw its strength first from a relationship to the source of perfect love, Christ himself, because you will lack the strength to do it yourself. Pink, you have good desires. You have God-given desires. It is natural for you to want to be with a man who will meet them. But better than finding a man who thinks pink, better still to bond with a man who has a passion for purple. Serving Christ first. Blue, you have God-given desires and needs. It is natural for you to want a woman who will meet some of them. But better than finding a woman who bleeds blue, the most excellent way is find a girl with a passion for purple, who loves Jesus Christ with all of her heart, soul, and strength and mind. Because when you finally have all three intertwined, then you are ready to braid your lives together because you'll have something running through it that's stronger, a bond that's made to last. A cord of how many? Three strands is not quickly broken. It's a beautiful thing when a couple comes together um, with this picture in mind and when their relationship with one another intertwines with their relationship with Christ. Um, And as we close the series, we wanted to give you a live example, a spiritual picture to remember what this looks like in real time because it's not theory, it's street level. So I want to go live and ask one of our couples here at Liquid, actually Jonathan Lohr, who serves on the video team, He's been dating a wonderful gal named Esther here at Liquid. She was running the camera at the 9 a.m. service to share just how his spiritual journey to knowing Jesus has been woven into his relationship with Esther. I'm here today with Jonathan Lohr, who serves on our video team here at Liquid. And Jonathan, you've been dating a special woman here at Liquid for actually the last five years almost? Absolutely. I've been dating Esther, who's part of our video editing team. Um, In fact, she's filming right now. Hi, honey. How are you doing? And at the same time, Jonathan's been developing his personal relationship with God. And as we were talking, it was fascinating to listen to Jonathan's spiritual journey and just how his relationship with God was really kind of intertwined in your romantic relationship with Esther. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, we met in spring break, and uh, we're as opposites as opposites can get. Uh, you know, I'm, she's Felix Unger, and I'm Oscar Madison. The messy know. one. <laughs> That's it, the messy one. You know, her father's a minister, and I'm a, I'm a fake Catholic, so... <laughs> what do you mean, fake Catholic? <laughs> uh, you know, I only go during Christmas and maybe a wedding if I'm invited. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, it, uh, she's Korean, and I'm Ecuadorian, and it, it's just very interesting how we're not supposed to be together. But yet we are, and uh, opposites do attract, definitely. And now, coming from different spiritual backgrounds, at that time, you were really starting to ask the bigger questions, what's the purpose of my life, what role does God play? How did that unfold? I was always on a spiritual journey, but I was, I was uh, intimidated uh, with the idea that I didn't want to appease Esther in, in this regard, and um, it was important for her to be with a Christian man, even though we've been dating for almost two years now. And she invited me to Liquid, and 
And there, we've, I found something tremendously liberating. Um, the, idea that, the idea that I can be myself, um, there's no pressure from anyone, there's no rules, no rituals, no regulations, you know, no one's looking at the offering bucket, making sure that I'm, I'm contributing. Um, it really gave me a sense that, wow, this is, this is a really special place for us. And, and I think that's where my journey really started. So Jonathan, how has God helped you and Esther particularly overcome struggles that any relationship inevitably has? Oh, um, you know, it's amazing. This series, uh, Love and Respect, really opened up uh, what, what we've been doing in our relationship this whole time. Uh, and man, we've had some times, and there's a lot of things we've tested in our relationship. Uh, I tried opening my own business, which I, I'm still running, some might say unsuccessfully. And Esther just gives me such a sense of unconditional respect in that regard. That's a challenge, starting your own business. There's a lot of swings and misses in that. Absolutely, and, and I feel like I'm swinging a lot, and uh, <laughs> and, um, and and there she is, you know, helping me pitch that ball, you know, and waiting for it to get out of the park, and uh, and that encouragement is is unbelievable. So, how has your relationship with Christ grown the most here at Liquid? Um, definitely servicing. Esther and I both uh, serve on the video team, which is which is great because I'm such a you know geek when it comes to technology and. <laughs> And she's starting to appreciate that because she's on the video camera, something that she, she doesn't really do often and at all, and she loves it. Yeah, and so serving together is a big deal in your relationship. Oh, yeah, it's definitely, it's morphing into being an important part of our, our lives, actually. So as you grow together here, you're growing with God, which is awesome to see. You're growing, and it's been five years since you first started dating, and you've yep. been through ups and downs. Where do you see your relationship going? Oh, well... Funny thing you should ask that. Um, it's, it's come to a point where, well, really, what is the next step? I mean, I love you so much. You respect me so much. And I, I think it's time. Well, what do you think, honey? You, you think you would marry me at this point? <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, I'm very serious. Will you marry me? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Go! <laughs> One hour ago, Esther was sitting behind that camera. That's not Esther. Anthony, wave your hand. This is not Esther. And the, the, the chair leaned back a little bit as Jonathan looked into that camera and then came out on stage. Would you like to see what happened? Let's go to the video tape, would you? Oh, no, Jonathan. <laughs> Good times, buddy. <laughs> You're serious. I'm so serious. I'm serious. My nerves are. <laughs> I I love you so much, so much. I can't. Go get her, man. Would <laughs> <laughs> you bury me? <laughs> amazing thing when pink and blue come together and purple runs down through the middle. It's an amazing thing. They're going to face trials. They're going to face struggles. They're going to face tests. And, and if, you are, if you are single, there is hope. And if you are, if you are divorced, it, it, it doesn't have to define you. There's still hope. Christ redeems any situation. 
Jonathan didn't know Christ before he came to Liquid, was in this environment where he began understanding, understanding the primacy of God in his life. And then he said, I can commit to you not as a man who's perfect, but as unto one who loves a perfect God. And they're going to be married. It was an amazing thing. So let's do this. Let's stand together. I want to pray actually for Jonathan and Esther and for all of us even in this room. God, thank you that we can just be free before you and acknowledge we are imperfect, God. There's not a perfect pink girl in this room. There's not a perfect pink man, God. And thank you for the pressure being off. Thank you for your love for us, Jesus, and your promise to complete us, God, that we can find our significance in you, God, because now we are sons and daughters of God. We have salvation through faith in your son, Jesus. And Father, we are forgiven of our past. We're not defined by it. And we have power for living in a different way of putting others' deals ahead of our deal. And God, I just pray today, I pray for Jonathan and Esther, Lord, uh, even as they, they walked out of this room just kind of shaking in the nervousness of that, Father. I pray for them that your covering would be over them, your spirit would fill them, God, and you'd bless them in the weeks to come. But I pray for every man and woman now in this room, God. You know where everybody is, Lord. You know the wounds that we carry from past relationships, Father, the fears we have of, of ones to come, or even the tensions that we have right now, God. They're not perfect. And that's why we need your help. So we invite you now into our relationships with one another. Could they reflect this season even more your love for us? Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for taking us as we are and promising never to let go. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.